Well, uh, imagine you had to go to court for a speeding ticket. And you're standing before the judge, uh, and the judge says to you, uh, what is your name, sir? And you say to the judge, I will ask you one question, and if you answer me that one question, well, then, then I'll tell you my name. <laughs> How do you think that'd go for you? <clears throat> Imagine you're back in fifth grade, uh, and you misbehave in class, and your teacher sends you to the principal's office. And you get to the principal's office, and the principal says to you, uh, what did you do? Why are you here? And you say to the principal, I will ask you one question. And if you answer this question, I will tell you what I did. I don't know if that would go over well either. My fifth grade principal was a woman named Evelyn C. Becker. She was the oldest, meanest, scariest, horn-rimmed, glasses-wearing principal that you would ever see in your entire life. And I was terrified of her. Now, I'm sure she was probably 40 years old and very nice, but I was terrified of this woman, and there was no way that I would dare question Evelyn C. Becker uh, about what she had dared uh, to ask me about. So uh, what do we do when we're in those situations, when we are in situations where somebody has authority over us? We don't dare have the audacity to go on the offensive and question them, right? Why not? Well. It's because they are the ones in authority. They are the ones asking the questions. They are the ones seeking the facts and ultimately uh, dispensing justice, right? That's what people in authority do. And so that's what makes the passage that we are going to look at today so fascinating, so intriguing, because the chief priests and the scribes, well, they were the ones who at least thought they were in authority uh, on that day. And Jesus was like the defendant in court or, or the fifth grade student standing before uh, these authorities, daring to question those in charge. And in so doing, Jesus was himself asserting authority over them, saying that he is the authority and they were under him, which was a complete flip in their minds of where true authority uh, was to be found. And so... Uh, we're closing in on Christmas now, believe it or not. We're already thinking about that. Rhonda, I saw all your boxes in the back there. They look beautiful. Uh, so Christmas is coming where we sing about Jesus, holy infant, so tender and mild, right? Well, yes, he was a holy infant, so tender and mild sometimes, but not all the times, and certainly not with the chief priests and the scribes. They were hypocrites, and he was not tender and mild with them. Uh, so that's what we're going to see in our passage today. So let's remember uh, where we left off last week. We're in the last week of Jesus's life, uh, what we call the Passion Week. And what we see uh, beginning on Sunday is that Sunday night, Jesus entered the temple uh, and he looked around. Uh, and then he went back out to Bethany, the house where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, most likely. On Monday morning, Jesus went back to Jerusalem. Uh, and then Jesus cursed the fig tree on the way there. And once he reached the temple, then he overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered all the commerce that was happening there. And then he went back out to Bethany again on Monday night. On Tuesday morning, the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus uh, came and saw with his apostles that the fig tree had withered. Uh, and then Jesus gave a, a discourse about the, the necessity, the priority, and the power of faith and prayer. And so that's where we left off last week. And now this week, they are going to be continuing uh, their journey from the fig tree to uh, the temple courts. Uh, and that is what, what uh, is going to happen today. What, what happens at the, uh, at the uh, temple courts is what we'll be talking about. 
So Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen as he left the fig tree and moved on to the temple courts because he planned it all. This was all his doing. He deliberately stirred the hornet's nest in Jerusalem, exposing the chief priests and the scribes and their hypocrisy for what they were. These were power-hungry people who were only interested in protecting their own position and their own place. So he's exposing these people. But at the same time, in his own sovereignty, he is setting the wheels in motion that would result in his own execution, which happens by his own authority and his own choice, not by the authority of the scribes and the chief priests. So let's begin by talking about this question of authority. This will be verses 27 to 33. Uh, who, has, who has authority? They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him and began to say to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began a reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I mean, I just love Jesus. (laughs) I mean, just unbelievable, uh, the nerve that he had. Uh, But, you know, it's just another claim of authority. And and Jesus has proclaimed authority all throughout Mark. So uh, just think about what he's claimed authority over uh, in the book of Mark so far, right? We've seen him proclaim authority over nature, right? He had calmed the seas when the the apostles all thought they were going to drown. Uh, He showed that he was uh, had authority over sickness. He healed deafness, blindness. He raised Jairus' daughter back to life. He showed that he had authority over demons, right? Casting out the man with the demons uh, in Mark chapter 5. He even claimed authority over the Sabbath, saying uh, that I am Lord of the Sabbath. Can you imagine saying that to the chief priests and to the Pharisees? Uh, So uh, he claimed authority over the Sabbath, even over the food laws, right? Saying, look, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out of a man that defiles him. And then Mark adds that parenthetical statement, by this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And now he's claiming authority over the temple, right? casting out all the people who were uh, doing commerce there uh, on that day. Uh, This would be like one man trying to shut down the Texas State Fair. Could you imagine that? that? That's what this is like. It would be like trying to shut down the mall at Christmas. This is the busiest time, the most lucrative time of the year for these corrupt chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. And so anybody who dared interrupt uh, all that money-making that was going on in the temple courts was going to hear from the higher-ups, the people who claimed to be in authority. And so these people come to him. A delegation of, of chief priests and scribes come to him, and they challenge him. They question him. Uh, verse 28, uh, who gives you this authority? What gives you the right uh, to answer or to, or to act in the way that you're acting, to clear out the temple uh, and to interrupt all the commerce that we have going on? So their question in, in verse 27, asking them uh, where he gets this authority, or 28, where he gets this authority, is designed to get him to admit 
that, they don't ha that he doesn't have their authority, and therefore he has no authority. He's just a rogue who's, who's uh, a rebel turning over tables with no authority at all. He wouldn't obey their authority, and, and they thought that they were the only source of authority. And so they're trying to bully him by coming in numbers, and they probably thought that they had him completely trapped uh, with their question, because what is Jesus going to say? If he says, look, my authority is from God, they would have stoned him as a blasphemer. And if he said, my authority is from me, well, they would have just dismissed him as a rebel. So Jesus doesn't have an answer that's good that would satisfy them anyway. Uh, actually, when you think about it, both of these answers were actually true, right? He did come with God's authority. He did come on his own authority. But they would not have accepted either one of those answers. They thought that God had given them the authority, and they sure were not about to share their authority with Jesus. So what they knew about Jesus was that he performed miracles uh, and that he spoke with authority. They knew that the people loved him, and so they had to be very careful about how they handled him. Uh, and Jesus knew from his perspective that these people were not seeking knowledge. They weren't seeking truth. They were trying to figure out a way to trap him so they could destroy him. So how would Jesus answer? Would he say, my authority is from God? Would he say, my authority is from men? Would he say, my authority is from myself? Well, no, he didn't say any of these things. In fact, uh, instead of responding with an answer that they would not have accepted, he turns the tables on them and asks them a question uh, to expose their own motives. And so I just love his bravado, right? Verse 29, I will ask you one question and you answer me and then I'll tell you what, by what authority I do these things. And so that is a claim of authority. He's claiming authority over them to be able to say to them, I'm not answering your question until you answer my question, and then I'll answer your question. So what defendant would dare interrogate the judge, right? What fifth grader would dare interrogate the principal? This is what Jesus was doing. He was challenging their authority. He didn't fear their authority at all. And so this question that he asks of them puts them in a real quandary. Flipped the tables completely. And so what does Jesus do? He purposely links himself with John, which is ingenious and obviously biblical. That's what he, that's what he did. Uh, so the Jewish leaders, they surely remember John's fiery sermons about the need to have uh, a baptism uh, for repentance and that he heralded Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, John said that he was the fulfillment of one crying out in the wilderness, Malachi 3, Isaiah chapter 40. This is who he was, coming to herald the Messiah that their Hebrew scriptures promised. So any answer that they gave about John would, would apply equally to Jesus as well. That's why Jesus linked the two of them together. So whatever the source of, of John's authority, Jesus's authority was the same. And so I love that Jesus didn't just ask the question, right? He demanded an answer. He said, answer me, you know, uh, standing up there uh, in front of this crowd of people who are all decked out in their best robes, uh, looking like they are the authorities, and Jesus is the one demanding the answer. So verse 31, what do they do? They huddle, they debate, they, they scheme, they plan, trying to figure out what the best answer is to give. Now, notice that they're not interested at all in giving the right answer. They're interested in giving the answer that's going to save their face, right? Uh, to, to protect their position of power. And so what were their options? Well, Jesus only gave them two options, right? There were only two options that Jesus gave. Was the baptism of John from heaven or was the baptism of John from men? 
Well, as they pondered their options, they realized that they couldn't say that John's baptism was from heaven because John preached the coming of Jesus from their Hebrew scriptures. And so if John's baptism was from heaven, then the Messiah that he heralded was also from heaven. And then they would be guilty of not listening to John and not receiving Jesus. Uh, so that was not a good answer for them. They couldn't say it was from heaven. And plus, they had their own authority that they thought was solely from God, that God wouldn't give his authority to anyone else. And so uh, they're in that belief that, that uh, they couldn't share this authority that they thought was God-given. So they can't say from heaven. But then saying that John's baptism from men was also not a good option because the people believed that John was a real prophet and they didn't want to get in trouble with the people and draw the wrath of the crowd that loved John. So it was a no-win situation for the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus completely flipped the table on them in one simple question. And so what do they do? Instead of choosing one of the options that Jesus gave them, they came up with a third option. They said, we do not know. Now, what a lame answer, right? What a wishy-washy, no-commitment kind of answer that is. Uh, but that's how they behaved when Jesus put them on the spot. They were lying, trying to protect themselves, but it didn't work. Because these are the religious leaders, right? These are the people who are supposed to have the answers. And so when you ask them a pointed question and they don't have the answer, uh, well, it just goes to show that they don't know anything. If they don't know who, where John's baptism came from, then what did they know? Uh, and the people who were witnessing this, many of them in the temple courts on that day during Passover, the busiest time of the year, there would have been tons of witnesses who saw this interaction. And the chief priests and the scribes ended up looking foolish and ignorant. And after this lame answer that they give, Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer your question then. He refused to answer, which is another claim of authority, right? Who dares not answer the question of somebody who's in authority over them? Well, Jesus dares because he had authority over them, as it turns out. And so uh, Jesus surely humiliated the chief priests. He surely humiliated the scribes with all that happened in this interaction. Uh, and, you know, Jesus could have at that point he could have left that interaction and simply walked away. He could have done that. But Jesus wasn't done with them, was he? Uh, Jesus wanted not only to expose their hypocrisy uh, from verses 27 to 33, now he wants to, to uh, unmask their, their, their evil motives, their greed. Uh, and so that's why, he, before, they could, before they could leave, uh, he tells the parable of the vine growers. The parable of the vine growers. We'll read it all the way through verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed, and with so many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him of, the, of all to them. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But these vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. 
Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. So in that culture, it was not unusual for somebody with a vineyard, a wealthy landowner, to rent out that vineyard to workers. And the landlord would normally charge about 25% of the yield or so in rent from the vineyard workers, and he would collect that at the appropriate seasons. He would send an employee who would come and collect the produce that was due. And so uh, the parable of the vineyard fits the context of the time, and it does so also in its description of the vineyard itself, uh, because the the wall, there was a wall, and it was there to keep animals out. There was a pit, as described in the first couple of verses, which was actually a trough that would catch the juice uh, after the grapes were crushed and collect that into a vat that would become the wine. And then uh, there was also a watchtower, and this is what a watchtower would have looked like that overlooked the vineyard. So you can see that you would climb to the top of that, and it would serve kind of as a watchtower to look out over the vineyard, and it was a place of shelter uh, for these guards who were looking uh, out over the vineyard. And so that's that's what the vineyard looked like. Now, as for the characters in the parable, now let's just talk about this for a second. The owner of the vineyard, obviously, uh, is God. God planted Israel in the land. He owns the land. The tenants of the vineyard represent Israel, uh, Israel that God gave the land to and whom he expected would produce fruit from the land. The slaves are the prophets. These are the ones that God sent to Israel, to Israel to warn them about remaining faithful uh, to God. And then the son in the parable is Jesus. As Hebrews chapter 1 explains, uh, after Jesus sent, uh, spoke through the prophets in, in many times and through many ways, he sent, last of all, his son. Uh, that is what is being referenced here. And so Jesus comes after, the son comes after all the prophets. And then uh, this, this whole situation, this planting of the vineyard, uh, is representative of God's relationship to Israel. God is the owner. God planted Israel in the land. They were the stewards. They were the stewards. God was the owner, and God had a right to expect that they produce fruit. And the chief priests and the scribes, well, they had a reference to being compared to a vine grower. Uh, This comes right out of Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug all around it, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And so here is the, the, the early reference to Israel as a, a fruitless vine. Uh, And so Jesus is picking up on that metaphor uh, in the uh, parable of the vine growers here. So this this metaphor would have been very familiar to the chief priests and scribes. When when God sent prophets to Israel to correct Israel, he expected the fruit to be uh, faithfulness, repentance, obedience. Uh, But instead, uh, Israel repeatedly rejected the prophets that God sent. Uh, Some they simply rejected, others they even killed. And in the parable, what happens is that the tenants, the the, the vine growers, they refused to pay the proceeds from the vineyard, and they treated the slaves with contempt, even killing most of them. 
just like Israel did with the prophets that God sent. So the owner of the vineyard had one more person to send. Verse 6, he sends his own son. Now the owner thinks, surely uh, this is my son. He has much more authority than my slaves. Surely they're going to uh, respect my son and treat him well. Uh, I have always thought myself that these tenants were insane to think that if they killed the son, that they somehow would become the owners of the land. Like, how does that work? We, we murder people and then we get the land? Is that how that goes? Well, there is a background for this, and that is that in ancient Israel, uh, if you saw a piece of property that, that you liked and you wanted, uh, if you squatted on that property for a certain period of time, say three years, uh, and your, your uh, squatting on that property was unchallenged, uh, as though no one else owned the property, that property actually became yours. So the tenants may have thought that the owner of the vineyard had died and the son was coming to claim uh, this vineyard as his own. And if they simply knocked him off and then sat on the land for three years, well, they might ultimately own it for themselves. Now, this is obviously incredibly warped thinking, uh, but this kind of thinking is representative of Israel at the time and and its claim of authority, its claim of power and control uh, over uh, this, uh, this vineyard that was Israel and the temple particularly. And so uh, these owners, uh, the, these, these chief priests and scribes, they way, way overstepped the bounds of their authority. They were merely God's tenants and stewards, and yet they're treating Israel, their power, and the Temple Mount as if it's all theirs, as if they own it, and everybody else was there to serve them. And so they disgraced the temple with the way they were using it as a den of robbers, letting people pass through the temple uh, and defiling it as they did. And that's why Jesus overturned the tables. So at this point in the parable, verse 9, Jesus pauses to ask, what will the owner of the vineyard do? It's just like a teacher in school, right? Asks the question, the teacher knows the answer, but the question is, do the students know the answer? How will they answer? Now, Mark doesn't record their answer, interestingly, but Matthew does, which is why we sometimes have to correlate the Gospels to see uh, what the other Gospels say about a particular part of the story. So in Matthew 21, verse 41, the scribes and the chief priests actually answer the question. They say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So isn't that interesting? In Matthew, the answer is recorded, and Matthew seems interested uh, in showing that the, the vine growers understood uh, that these, the, these uh, miserable tenants deserved punishment. They just didn't see themselves as the vine growers. They totally missed that part of it. And so they understood that justice needed to be uh, administered, but they didn't understand that he was speaking against them. And so Mark, in his gospel, he skips over the answer of the chief priests and the scribes. And he has Jesus answering his own question in verse 9. Uh, he will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Well, who are these others? Well, again, Mark doesn't say. Uh, but Matthew does. Matthew tells us who they are and tells us what happens to these tenants. Uh, 21 verses 43 and 44. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So these others who God is going to give the vineyard to are people who are going to produce the fruit of it. That could be believing Jews. That could also be Gentiles. We know that the church uh, consists of both. 
And so they would love God, they would receive Jesus, and they would produce the fruit of righteousness. But then what happens to the vine growers? The vine growers don't believe, and so God will remove them uh, and because they were unfaithful, they were authority-seeking, uh, and they would be taken from power, just like the tenants are going to lose this vineyard. And so Jesus tells this parable against them, and uh, we're, we're left to wonder how much they understand, because at this point, they still seem not to get it. And so Jesus twists the knife even further, right? He could have left it, but he still goes even further with these guys in verses 10 and 11, uh, which is a direct quote from Psalm uh, chapter 118, uh, verses 22 and 23. He says, have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. So after telling this parable against them, uh, now he used scripture against them. And he takes the metaphor and switches it. It was a vine grower growing grapes, uh, producing wine. Now it's a stone uh, that a stonemason would use to build a house. And so Jesus applies the, the, the parable uh, or the, the scripture verses to himself. Uh, he was the stone. Uh, he was the Messiah another claim of authority. They would not have missed this. He, he, they knew what he was saying about himself. So when a stonemason builds a building, it's important to choose that cornerstone wisely because all the other stones are dependent on how, the size of that cornerstone, the angle that that cornerstone is laid. You lay that and then all the other stones fall in line uh, with that stone. So this is just a simple sketch of what a house would look like. Uh, and, and so you see that cornerstone in red in that bottom corner. Uh, that is what Jesus was saying about himself. Uh, he is the cornerstone and all other stones depend on him. So he, he claims to be the cornerstone that God sent. Uh, he was the perfect stone and yet the builders rejected it. Now, the builders, of course, are the chief priests and the scribes. They, he came proclaiming to be the Messiah, doing the things that Messiah would do, and they rejected him. They cast him aside for their own power, for their own authority. Uh, and so how sad that, that they let their hypocrisy and greed get in the way of recognizing Jesus as their Messiah. But, you know, their rejection of the Messiah does not change the fact that he is the Messiah, right? Just because you deny something doesn't make it not so. Jesus is the Messiah. They just refuse to believe it. And interestingly, the temple would be gone in just a few short years, right? But Jesus lives forever and ever. He is the foundation on which the church rests. And it's interesting that the word that Jesus used for cornerstone can also be translated capstone. So you may have capstone in your version of the Bible. Now, the capstone of the building is that blue little uh, triangle on the top of the building that you see in that little picture. Uh, and that shows that the building is complete. It caps off, finishes uh, the building. So interesting, Jesus' work, his perfect life, then dying a sacrificial death on the cross and then rising from the grave is the capstone of the gospel. It is the capstone of everything that we need to be saved. And it's the capstone for the formation of the church. And so God set Jesus as both the cornerstone and the capstone of the church. And Israel's rejection of Jesus does not stop the mission. In fact, God used what Israel did to Jesus, planned for it, in order to set Jesus as the cornerstone and the capstone of the church. And so Jesus purposely spoke this parable 
and scripture against the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, and he's exposing the truth about these leaders, first to show them about the, the blackness of their own hearts, but also to the witnesses around that, that, that he is the Messiah and he is the one with authority and they ought to follow him and not be a sub subject to what the chief priests and the scribes were saying. And so Jesus repeatedly humiliated them because they would not bow to his authority. They would not humble themselves and receive Jesus as their Messiah. And you know, if they didn't understand the parable before, they sure understood it now, right? After Jesus spoke these verses from Psalm 118 against them, uh, he knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was going at them hard. And the reason he was doing that was that he was purposely backing them into a corner so that they would have no option but to have to seize him and have to kill him because Jesus had to die in Jerusalem at Passover. And here we see in verse 12 that they wanted to seize him, but they couldn't. The time was not right yet. Uh, and so why? It's because they feared the people. They feared the people. Isn't that interesting? Like if we could diagnose the chief priests and the scribes' problem, starting in one verse, this would be a really good place to start. They feared the people. Where is the fear of God? Where is the fear of God in these chief priests and scribes who they supposedly represent? They weren't afraid of God. They feared the people. They were afraid to give the Jesus an answer that would expose that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that would have diminished their own power and authority. They didn't want to look foolish in front of the people. And so how could they have so much fear of people and yet no fear of God for acting like hypocrites and thieves uh, and, and defiling the temple and doing everything else they did uh, to Jesus, rejecting God's Messiah? They forgot that the power that they had was not their own. It derived from God. God gives them the power and God uh, demanded a duty from them and they failed in that duty and God can remove people from authority anytime he wants. And so Jesus uh, lambastes uh, the scribes and the chief priests here, uh, and everybody saw it, and how humiliating for them. Uh, and Jesus is just trying to teach them, you are accountable to God, and you are refusing to recognize your Messiah, and there is going to be a price to be paid for that. So as we think about this, uh, this uh, first parable and then uh, the, the uh, truth about who Jesus is as the chief cornerstone, let's just wrap up with a couple of applications. And the first one to remember is that we are also accountable to God. We are also accountable to God. You know, God has given us this building. He's given us this land. He's planted us in this community as our mission field. And we did none of this to earn any of this for ourselves. This was all a gift from God. And he will demand an accounting of all that he has given us. And so when we face God one day, we are never going to have to worry that we are going to be condemned because we have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But uh, we want to be able to stand before God and say that we have been good stewards of what he's given us. And a steward works at the pleasure of the owner and uh, to further the owner's mission. So uh, we need to ask ourselves if that's always true of us. And I need to ask this of me, my own, my own, uh, my own motives, my own, uh, my own inspirations. What keeps me going? So do I always do things for God's glory or do I do things for my own glory so that other people will say, 
oh man, what a great guy he is, right? What a pious man he is. Uh, we, have to, we have to watch uh, if we're asking questions like that. Am I trying to cement my own standing in the church and in the community by the things I do? Or am I trying to point people to God at all times? Am I humble enough to admit that God doesn't need me, but he allows me to be part of his ministry, uh, furthering his program in the world, not furthering my own program? Do I ever think that this church couldn't survive without me, right? That this church could not possibly survive without me. Do I ever think that? We all have to ask these kinds of questions of ourselves. When we ask questions like that of ourselves, uh, it can expose uh, what's in our hearts, uh, whether we're trying to give glory to God or whether we're trying to gain glory for ourselves. And so if we, if we ever have thoughts like that, if we're thinking that, that we are so necessary, uh, that we are acting as owners rather than stewards, uh, well, then we know we have crossed a line, and we have to be careful not to cross that line. We're only tenants and stewards, and we'll only be that as long as we remain humble and submissive to God and his will in the world. He will allow us to serve him if we humbly acknowledge our place and our position under him and work to glorify God. The chief priests and the scribes didn't do that, and justice was going to be coming for them in a few short years. So we have to remember that we are accountable to God. And secondly, we have to remember that Jesus has ultimate authority. You know, Grace Redeemer has always set Jesus as the cornerstone of the church. And we acknowledge his authority over all things. We have always done that. Before I was here, when Carl started this church, with the rest of you families who started this church, Jesus Christ has been this church's foundation from the very beginning. And so we seek to honor him in all we do and say. And that's why we preach from the Bible every week. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. We remember and we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. This church is built on the rock that is Jesus Christ. But, you know, there have been churches in the past that have been built on the rock of Jesus Christ and have strayed from that rock. And so we need to be careful of that. We need to watch ourselves. You need to watch me. You need to watch yourselves. We need to be careful that we don't stray and make anything else the cornerstone or bow to some other authority that, that somehow uh, we might think has become higher uh, than God's authority and our mission to glorify Jesus Christ. As soon as we make anything else the foundation of the church, as soon as we uh, decide that somebody else has authority or someone, some other speaker uh, who's not preaching the word of God has authority, well, then we'll have lost our way. We'll have departed from the mission that God has given us, and we may lose his blessing. Now, Jesus gave his life so that we might live, and so he gets all the glory. And so we worship him because he loved us and saved us when we were sinners and we were enemies of God. And he bought us with his blood, and that's why he has authority over us. So let's always remember why we're here and who we worship. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we thank you uh, for this passage. Jesus could be uh, very difficult on his enemies. And uh, Lord, we thank you for exposing the darkness of their hearts because it exposes the darkness of our hearts. Lord, help us to, to root out uh, any of this that we may see in ourselves. And Lord, help us to give Jesus all the glory, all the time, and not seek it for ourselves. Uh, Lord, we long to be your ambassadors and your evangelists, uh, advancing your kingdom uh, through the word in this place that you have planted us. And we pray that you will keep us on that mission. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.